pray together. God, we do praise you. We praise you for your faithfulness. We praise you for the rain. We praise you for the way that you sustain this creation. That, that all of these things in creation exist because you hold them in your mind. What an incredible God you are. We praise you for that. And not only that they exist, but that in your faithfulness, in your goodness, you are moving all of these things towards the glory of Christ, the redemption of your people, the just application of what is good and right and true. And God, we praise you that you are in control of all of these things. We confess, Father, that our hearts don't love you like they should. And yet we thank you that your love for us is not dependent upon our reciprocation. But I do ask that you would teach us to love you more, that we would trust you more, that in whatever difficulties or sorrows or challenges we experience in this life, we would trust you. And we give you thanks that you will sustain us in this journey that we're on. And so, Lord, I pray that you would bless our time. God, just minister to us through your word, through worship, through your spirit, through fellowship. Draw us closer to you, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So I would love for you to open your Bible with me to Genesis 35. If it's not already apparent, we invite you to bring your Bible to church every week. If you don't have one, we have some Bibles on our little welcome table over here. But as Christians, we are a people of God's Word. And so when we gather, we want to gather with the intention to look closely at God's Word. So we're going to look at the second half of chapter 35 of Genesis this morning. We did the first half of this chapter last week, and we looked at how God has been faithful to bless Jacob through his life. We talked about this idea, the redemptive historical plot of Scripture, which is to say that the Bible is moving from creation through the fall of man into sin, ultimately to the redemption of man in the glory of Christ at the end of all things. And I pointed out last week that although Jacob is blessed by God, that that blessing does not spare Jacob from the tragic realities of human life, the human condition, the human experience. The redemptive plot of Scripture snakes its way through history, through the trials and sufferings and difficulties and hardships of the human experience before it finally reaches its end in the redemption of mankind, the resurrection. And so today we're going to see some of that winding path of hardship as we look at Jacob's life. Let's pick up in verse 16. Genesis 35, verse 16. It says, Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardness, hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni. But his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. 
It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve, the sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin, the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan, and Naphtali, the sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Paddan Aram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died, and was gathered to his people, old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. All right, so Jacob, who is also known by the name now Israel, and his family, they now journey south from Bethel where Jacob first encountered God all those years ago when he left his father's house, and they head back to Mamre, which is where Jacob's father, Isaac, has been dwelling for quite some time in Genesis. And as his family is traveling southward towards Mamre, Jacob experiences this very bittersweet moment. Rachel, Jacob's favorite wife, gives birth to her second son. Remember, for most of her life, she was barren. She did have one son, who is Joseph. And now she gives birth to her second son, who will be Jacob's youngest son, Benjamin. And his birth is obviously bittersweet, because in um, Benjamin coming into the world, his mother, Rachel, dies from the labor. And we're not really given any picture into the emotional state of Jacob at this point as he goes through this difficulty. But I think it's fair to assume that he would be devastated. I mean, I think any spouse who experiences the unexpected death of their spouse would be devastated, shocked by that tragedy. And I think that we can assume that not only because that's typical human experience through a tragedy like this, but I think we actually see a little bit of it maybe teased out in the text here. Um, I think we see Jacob in a bit of shock. We're told that in verse 22 uh, that Jacob's oldest son, Reuben, sleeps with Jacob's concubine shortly after this happens. And the text tells us Jacob hears about it, and that's it. Now, Jacob does have this past history, if you remember, as we've made our way through his life in Genesis, that he can be a little bit dispassionate about some of the crazy things that happen in his life. But I think his grief here makes him more passive than he usually is. I think this sentence shows Jacob being quite numb. As for Reuben, the incestuous act of sleeping with his father's concubine is mentioned just in passing in this one verse. We don't get a whole scene where we delve into the particulars of that event. But actually, this is a very important moment in the much larger story of Reuben's life and and Jacob's family. It's an important detail. 
Reuben is Jacob's oldest son. We're reminded of that in verse 23. And as the oldest son, Reuben stands to inherit the blessing of his family. Really, the blessing that God gave to Abraham that passed to Isaac and passed to Jacob and would, we would expect, pass to the oldest son. But I think much like Esau was consumed by his appetite and traded his birthright for a bowl of stew, you have Reuben consumed by his sexual appetite. And in this moment, he forfeits his birthright by violating the bed of his father and going into his father's concubine. I think there's two things to notice here. First, once again, in the history of Abraham's family, the birthright does not do what we would expect. The blessing does not pass to the natural son, the heir that we would anticipate, but instead gets passed to another, to a younger son. Once again, the older son does not receive this blessing like Isaac received it over Ishmael, who was older, and like Jacob received it over Esau, who was older. This is one more reminder that God is sovereign in bestowing his blessing. God is not obligated to bless certain people based on the expectations of man or human behavior. The fact of the matter is, if God wanted to bless Reuben, he would have, but God wanted to bless Joseph, and so God will do that. And verse 22, I think, is preparing us to understand that Reuben, just like Esau, despised his birthright through these actions. And so this is interesting. Man's responsibility, God's sovereignty. Both because Reuben acts this way and because God wills it, the birthright of Abraham will not pass to the oldest son. It will pass to an unexpected heir instead. But I also want to point out that although Reuben does this wicked thing against his father, in a few chapters, we're going to see Reuben step in to save Joseph's life. He's going to insert himself into the conflict between Joseph and Joseph's brothers. Actually, it's all of their brothers. And he's going to do so in a way that's going to save Joseph's life. So I think what we're seeing here is Genesis reiterate a few major themes. Um, and I think I've mentioned this before, that some of the stuff we, we touch on in, in Genesis, we just touch on again and again and again. That's actually the Bible in summary. Some of those themes are God's faithfulness to his covenant people in establishing the sons of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel. God's sovereign right to do as he pleases concerning the affairs of men and his plans for salvation. And also, we're going to see here, I think, in the life of Reuben, the complex nature of human beings who at the same time are capable of great acts of heroism and virtue while simultaneously are capable of being deeply depraved and governed by wickedness. Every major character that we have encountered in the story of Genesis since Adam has been this has been depicted in this way, this kind of mix of both nobility and depravity. A convoluted mess of actions and motives that are sometimes praiseworthy and yet also often corrupt. Does that in any way remind you of yourself? Ever shocked at 
some of the things that you do or say and you're like, man, that's really not like me. And, and yet, it is you. And the reason why Genesis does this is because it gives us a picture of humanity made in the image of God. Therefore, imbued with great dignity because we reflect God. And yet also humanity plunged into the reprobate reality of sin. Therefore, infected with evil as rebellious transgressors. I mean, this is just a picture of humanity. This is the, con- uh, the conflicted nature of what it means to be a person. And if we continue to follow the story of Scripture, what we will find is that left to its own devices, humanity does not improve in this condition. Actually, it sinks deeper into rebellion. Read the Old Testament, and the story doesn't progress and get better from Genesis. It tends to get worse and worse. Then after the verse about Reuben, we're given a brief description of the 12 sons of Jacob who are going to become the 12 tribes of Israel. We're going to get to that in more detail when we get to Genesis chapter 49. And there's kind of an in-depth look at the 12 sons of Israel. Um, So we're going to save that for another sermon. I'll just point out that chapter 35 then comes to a close by telling us that Jacob does finally arrive back at the home of his father Isaac in Mamre. And we get this record of Isaac's death and Isaac's burial. And I think the record of Isaac's long life, 180 years, is a testimony of God richly blessing this man. He gave him long life. He provided for his needs. God was faithful to the descendant of Abraham to continue to pour out the blessing of God upon this man and this family. Now, you've probably heard me say many times that as a college student, I studied English literature before I dropped out of school. I actually, uh, even though I am a college dropout, completed all of the courses in my English literature uh, major. And that education has left me thinking about the Bible as I read it quite often in literary terms. The Bible is the Holy Spirit-inspired Word of God. It's also a historical book. It's also a book that if you read it will make you wise to live life in a good way. And it's the singular source of divine truth. Do you want to know what divinity is like? Read the Bible and you will see God. But in addition to all of those things, the Bible is also the most perfect piece of literature ever written. Um, I was listening recently to a podcast that was talking about how there is no work in the Western canon that is referenced more than the Bible. Meaning in all of the literature from sort of the Greco-Roman history, there is no work that is referenced more than the Bible. Because it's a beautiful piece of literature. It's an incredible, epic, true story with dynamic characters. It's got a captivating plot. It's got a very engaging climax and a resolution that's hopeful and optimistic and not despairing or nihilistic. And as a piece of literature, it's got a number of other literary aspects to it. But the reason I'm telling you all of this is because I want to point out one literary aspect this morning, which is what I would call the journey motif. Many works of literature follow this idea of the journey motif, 
It's simply a, a story about a character who goes on a journey, and that journey usually transforms them kind of from lesser to greater. Jenny, you're, you're laughing. You said going to church is like going to school. Is that one of, one of these moments? I don't mean to put you on the spot. Jenny was telling me she loves going to school because she can't, or church, because she can't, she can't decide if it's like a, a school lecture or a sermon. I hope that's a good thing. All right. The Lord of the Rings. The Lord of the Rings is a journey motif. Hopefully you've read it or you've at least watched the movies. It's about a hobbit, Frodo Baggins, and his friend Samwise Gamgee, who through a long journey and friendship and courage and humility overcome evil. Or there's Homer's epic that has defined sort of the Greek Western world, which follows Odysseus on this harrowing journey home after the war that he went through at Troy. Or you have the Pilgrim's Progress, the story of Pilgrim who makes his way from the city of destruction to the celestial city. Or who can forget that masterpiece, Finding Nemo, about a dad who goes on a journey to rescue his son. The journey motif is all over the place because it makes for really engaging storytelling. Well, last week I said that the Bible is a redemptive historical book. It follows mankind on a journey from paradise lost to paradise found. One way of looking at the Bible then is to say that it tells us the journey story of humanity as a whole. We follow the prodigal man who in his foolishness abandoned the garden traveled from the paradise of God out into the sin of the world, and then through the work of the God-man, Jesus Christ, is given a path to be brought back home into paradise, the kingdom of God. But within that larger story, then we have smaller journey stories. We have the gospel of Mark that follows Jesus Christ from his birth in Bethlehem to the cross where he gave his life for our sins. And in Genesis, we've been following Jacob as he travels from his father's house to the land of Paddan Aram, and then all the way back home through all these years. And so I think it's fair to say that these verses that we're looking at today, what they present us, is kind of a summary of Jacob's journey that functions as a rough silhouette for our own journey, okay? And this is why the journey story is so compelling because all of us are on this journey of life. And in these verses about Jacob's life, I think we get some major themes of that story. So I want to look at those with you this morning, okay? The journey of life begins, obviously, at birth. We see that in the record of Benjamin's birth. And yet, isn't it interesting that Benjamin's birth is immediately juxtaposed with Rachel's death, reminding us of this tragic truth that as soon as we enter into this world, we are already on our way out. Because of man's sinful rebellion against God, to live is also to face death. And we're going to get to the end of the journey in more detail in a minute, but this is just the nature of life. You cannot escape it. It is a bittersweet mixture of hope and despair, of joy and sorrow, 
of pleasure and pain, of life and also death. And if you notice, Rachel calls her son Ben-Oni. And if your Bible puts a footnote there, then maybe you looked at it. And the footnote tells you that the meaning of the name is kind of ambiguous. I mean, in my experience, all of Hebrew is kind of ambiguous, but that's just because I was not good at it. But it can mean either son of my sorrow or son of my strength. And I don't think that's a coincidence. Because the journey of our lives has that ambiguous quality to it, doesn't it? And Rachel is literally walking through that ambiguity as she brings this new life into the world at the expense of her own life. The son of her sorrow is also the son to which she quite literally passes the strength of her life. As her life is lost, his begins. And so our journey starts when we're born into this world and immediately from that moment, the shadow of death is cast upon us. And yet for most of us, the shadow of death is long. It just lingers in the background while the many years of our lives are lived out. We don't tend to think about it much. I mean, when was the last time you sat and contemplated the fact that your life has a definite end date? In part, the reason why we don't do that is because we're afraid to think about it. But another reason is because we are weighed down by the more pressing, urgent distractions of our other great burden that we carry through this life. Remember back to the beginning of Genesis in chapter 3? In that chapter, we learned that because man rebelled against God and sinned, the whole spectrum of the human experience from birth to death and everything in between was plunged into this darkness. A life that's filled with heartache and difficulty because Adam turned away from God. And in doing that, he subjected all of mankind to sin. And Jacob's journey, I think, has summed this reality up well for us. Let's review it real quick. Remember that Jacob was born as a twin immediately into the competition for affection that would define his family. Born into a dysfunctional family where there was favoritism between mom and dad and there was relational conflict. As a result then, he was alienated from those closest to him and he was forced to flee his home. He fled in poverty. He fled in isolation. He spent 20 years then toiling fruitlessly for a family member who should have had more concern for him. And he saw very little profit in all of that except until the very end when God was faithful to him. Through that process, he suffered deception and mistreatment. Eventually, he fled that situation in fear of his own life. And he ended up stricken and wounded from his travels, being forced to limp his way through the latter years of his life. And then you remember his children dishonored him. He lived as a stranger in a strange land. Now his wife dies. And every time that he looks at his youngest son, he's forced to remember that his son is there at the expense of his beloved wife. The pain of losing her is always in front of him. 
And so Jacob's journey is anything but easy, isn't it? And this story is 4,000 years old, but it's not as if it's unique because he lived 4,000 years ago. Many things have changed in 4,000 years. Thank God for that. But the fundamentals of the human experience remain. Life is hard. I, I remember, I think, probably each of the times that my four children shed tears and I asked them, what's wrong? And their explanation was, I, I'm not really sure I can verbalize it. I'm just, as a child, finally under the weight of this truth that life is hard. That's why something like 60 million Americans are on antidepressants. Millions more are addicted to drugs and alcohol. Because the human experience is laced with pain and suffering, countless numbers of people live with lingering feelings of sadness and isolation and fear and anxiety and despair. And all of those things we try desperately not to feel, so we fill our lives with things like entertainment and hobbies and activities so that we don't have to sort of stare out of the void of the back yard of our minds into the emptiness that lingers there, the pain that lurks there, so that we don't have to face the truth that the journey of this life is difficult. Maybe you've recently been through a season like that. Eric, I think, was kind of alluding to it in referring to the pandemic that left many more people alone and isolated. But maybe this reality is fresh in your mind, and in a very personal way, you know that life is hard. And then we can ask the question, well, if that defines the journey that we're on, where is the journey taking us as we trek through all of the pain? Plodding ever onward, deeper into the shadow of death that's been lingering over us since the day that we were born. That's where the journey is taking us. A shadow so terrible that almost nobody has the courage to turn and face the reality of it. When I served as a chaplain, I was called by the city of Maricopa when there was kind of an unexpected death here in town. And um, most of the time, the person whose family I was called to serve in that time had no plan. They had not thought about their own death. Most of them didn't have a will. They didn't have funeral arrangements. They didn't even have a plan to provide for their family after that. And it was also staggering how their surviving family so often mentally refused to accept that the ever-present shadow of death had actually visited them. Right? Like we kind of all know it's back there, but when it finally falls on you, you, you never expect it. And yet it's always there. It's inescapable. It's inevitable. It's all around us. As I was working on this message, as if to sort of drive that truth home, I'm sitting at my desk, which I have windows in front of my desk that look out in my front yard. And um, I don't know, it might have been like Wednesday. I, I'm sitting there and I, I see this little quail family walk by the window. And it's a mom and a dad and a baby quail. And I realized that the last time the quail family walked by my window two weeks ago, 
It was a mom and a dad and eight baby quail. And now there's only one. And I guess maybe it's a little weird to drag the quail into this, but it did remind me of Jacob, who after facing a very challenging life, then buries his wife and buries his father, and he will go on to lose his son, one of his favorite sons. And of course, at the end of all of that, then Jacob himself will be buried. This is the human condition. And why is the world and the human life that we have to journey through so dreadfully defined by pain and the shadow of death? Well, this will be a review for us if you've been hanging around, but it's because we have to go back to the beginning of Genesis again, chapters 2 and 3. God told Adam, on the day that you disobey my command and you eat the fruit that I have forbidden you, you will surely die as a result of that disobedience. The consequence is death. And that death was twofold in nature. It was both spiritual and physical. The spiritual aspect was that man would be severed from God, disconnected from God, and therefore plunged into the death that is to be alienated from God. God is life. God is the giver of life. God is the source of all life. And to be cut off from God in a spiritual sense is death. And so all the pain and the heartache that you and I experience in this world boils out of this fact that through sin, Adam severed mankind from the life-giving source in God. Our sin has created a separation between us and God. And that separation is a spiritual death that produces all the evil, all the sadness, all the wrongness that we experience in this life. But the death which God said that we would suffer for our sin was also physical in nature. So that apart from a very few exceptions that we find in Scripture, all people must experience death as our body ceases to function and we lose the life that's in us. And so... I'll just warn you, like I have warned you before, you cannot escape death. And you cannot escape death any more than you can escape the pain and the heartache that this broken world thrusts upon every person. If you're looking to escape it in some kind of pleasure or some kind of addiction or some kind of medication, you won't find it even there. But I do want to tell you, don't despair. And the reason is because as you face all these things, and you must face them, Scripture teaches that you can still be victorious over them. The Bible is brutally honest about the difficulty of life. But the Bible is not a book of despair. If you read it and you, read that, if you, read it and you reach that conclusion, you're reading it wrong. Not by a long shot. The Bible is, in fact, a book that is eternally optimistic. It's so full of life and hope and joy. It's the story of our journey home. From this land of despair that we are stuck in to the home that God has prepared for us where there is everlasting joy. The Bible is like an unquenchable lamp 
that shines bright as we make this dark journey through life. And it addresses both of the themes that we have dealt with today, okay? The painful nature of life and also the looming reality of death. So that's where I want to go as we finish. When it comes to the pain that we suffer in this life, the Bible tells us, don't despair. Instead, rejoice. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12-13 through 13 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Christ Jesus came into this world as a man. Part of the reason was to suffer everything that we experience as a man. All of the pain and the heartache and then ultimately to suffer death. And he did that to identify with us as a real human person. And then also as God incarnate to bear for us all of our sin and our suffering in his body on the cross. And one of the things, one of the many things that Christ did for us through his suffering and his death is that he taught us to understand that there is no comparison between the suffering of this life that we must go through and the glory that is to be revealed to us in the life to come for those who are faithful. There's no comparison. Jacob suffered much in his life, but it was inconsequential compared to the blessing that God gave to him. And we must suffer much in this life because of sin, but the pain of the suffering, it does not have even one ounce of weight compared with the glory that is held for us in the revelation of Christ. Christ who awaits us. I've never been good at illustrations. I truly wish I was better and I I try, but I usually just fall flat, so then I just give up. But I figured I'd try again. Imagine someone kidnaps my family. And they're like, look, the only way you can get your family back is if you run this marathon. I know it's weird, but play along. (laughs) There is nothing that I hate more than running. Like, I thought that if there actually was a thing called purgatory, it would be like jogging and then painting and then jogging and painting and... I would just do that forever. There's nothing that I despise more than running, but there's nothing that I love more than my family. There's nothing more precious to me than that. And I would run that race, right? And I would run it with burning lungs and burning muscles. And I would run it through exhaustion and physical pain. And I would probably run it without any water, As fast as I possibly could, I would run that race faithfully with endurance. And I sincerely believe that through the entire race, that marathon, I wouldn't actually think much about how much I hate running or how much I'm suffering in the process. I would only be thinking of the joy of being reunited to my family and how every step along the way is worth it. And after the race was run, I don't think I would sit down and ponder much about how difficult it was or how much I suffered through it or what a big price it was for the reward that I got. No, instead, I would just be reveling in the joy of having my family back, wouldn't I? 
It's a little bit like that. Friends, we are told to rejoice in the sufferings of this life, like running that marathon with singing and dancing, even though my lungs might burn and my muscles are sore. Skipping, smiling every step of the way because I know what waits me at the end. Because I'm passing through this light and momentary affliction, chasing the treasure of Jesus Christ and His glory that is incomparable and stored up and certain and waiting for me at the end. The pain of this life is nothing compared to the treasure of Jesus Christ. And I can rejoice even as I go through that pain, knowing that Christ is the reward. And the Bible is a book of hope and light that shines for us in the midst of this dark journey that we're on. It also offers us this great optimism in light of the shadow of death that hangs over every one of us. Jesus says in Matthew 22, verses 31 through 32, And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Jacob buried members of his family, and Jacob was eventually himself buried. But Jesus says that he is not the God of the dead, but he is the God of the living, and specifically references Jacob. This is the God who died and rose again, and thus he is the God who takes the faithful dead and raises them up to new life, even though they have perished. Death still casts its shadow over all of us, but for Christian, death is actually just this doorway from the shadow of this life into the fullness of what God has prepared for those who love him. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. And so we cannot escape death, but through Christ we can indeed be victorious over death. We can actually face death unafraid, knowing that as we pass through death, we step immediately into the presence of Jesus in the life to come. Because Christ our Lord has conquered death and destroyed all of its power for those of us who believe. And so let me close with some words from the Apostle Paul. Eric, it was an amazing coincidence of the Spirit of God that you chose 1 Corinthians chapter 15 to lead us in prayer. And you heard my wife read it, but let me read it again. Paul writes, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of all people are most to be pitied. If at the end of that marathon I was going to run, my family was not there, pity me that I skipped and smiled through all of that suffering for no reward at the end. But, Paul writes, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, that's Adam, by a man has also come the resurrection from the dead, that's Jesus. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. And then comes the end, 
when Jesus delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. There's so much here, more than I have time to cover this morning, but that last sentence is what I want to leave you with. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. Jacob's suffering and Jacob's life, none of it was in vain. Because Jacob had faith in this God. And our suffering and our hardship through this life, the fact that death awaits us at the end, none of that is in vain for us either. If we remain steadfast, if we remain immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, trusting in Christ as we make this journey. Because through our Lord Jesus Christ, at the end of all of it, we will share with him in his victory over all things. And in that day, we truly will know that none of the pain, none of the hardship, none of the difficulty was ever in vain. Let's pray. God, would you make us steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work that you have given us to do, in trusting Christ, in following him, in laying our lives down, in taking up our cross. And God, I pray that we wouldn't just know that none of this is in vain in the life to come, but we would trust what your word tells us, that we would know even now that it's not in vain because of your promises in your word. And so, Lord, through whatever suffering and trial and difficulty you wisely bring our way, I pray that we would cling to you. And I pray, too, that in the shadow of death, we would look to the cross and the resurrection for hope. In Christ's name, amen.